Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Hello everyone, I'm Antonio Rankin, your host this week. While Spanners makes his way home from his Spanish adventures, tonight we are going to be opening up our listener email and as always we have a panel of various competents to give you their views on all of your questions about the world of F1. But before we start, let me remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our partners and patrons. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We may be wrong, but we're first. Now, I know what you're all thinking. I am slightly younger and considerably more female than Spanners, but I assure you that your mailbag questions are in very safe hands with our panels. So joining me today is Mr. Apex stalwart, Matt Two Rumpets. You can tell it's 25 days to testing because of the number of concepts that get mistakenly labeled livery leaks. Oh, I know we're being teased on Twitter at the moment, aren't we? We also have with us motorsport PR genius, Chris Stevens. Hi, Antonia. Just been watching the Daytona 24 hours, whole new era of sports car racing, very much whetting my appetite for the Le Mans 24 hours later this year. Yeah, we've got some really exciting things coming up, haven't we? Thank goodness the season is well within sight. And also, finally, here we have sim racer and streamer Alex Steensy Van Jean. Good evening. Looking forward to delving into the bag and seeing what the uh, patrons and people from Twitter want to ask us this week. Yeah, it's super exciting. So with that, let's get into all of your questions. So finally, the season is nearly upon us. And with that comes all of the excitement of testing. So let's get straight into some questions. And on the topic of testing, we have from Jason, who has said, I am a newbie to Formula One. During the time before Bahrain testing, what types of testing are the teams allowed to do? You would think that the teams each have a course in their backyards where they can make sure all of the parts fit together. But if that were the case, Mercedes would have known about the porpoising issue. A very good point. So on the topic of testing, of course, we've got the pre-season in Bahrain. It's all very exciting. And then we're straight into the season. But it does seem like there's very little time before the season begins that teams actually have to put these cars together. 
Now, I can offer a little bit of insight into this. Teams are actually only allowed to test the full ready-to-go cars either in free practice or in pre-season testing. Anything else has to be on just parts of the car. So, for example, when I've been to factories um, in the past, they've had cars in in from old seasons. So, for example, the whole car is 2018, except with the winglets and the wheels being the new season. So they kind of mix and match a little bit. But I mean, on the topic of testing, it's hard to know what to look out for, especially going into a new season where there's new regulations coming in. So, I mean, Van Jean, you've self-professed that you're not hugely into the whole technical side of things. So when testing does come around, what are you looking for? Um, I just like seeing race cars go room. No, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't mind the technical side of things. I like seeing the new things that come on. I'm, um, it's for me. It's the case of oh, okay, that's visibly different from what we had last year or the previous race or whatever. Um, but I, I just love to see how the drivers react. I love to see how difficult or easy they find a car to drive. I love watching because being my role in sales in my real life, um, I often sort of analyze people and I very much like watching the reactions of the people around the team. So the drivers, the, the team managers, the mechanics on their, um, body language and how they're behaving. Cause that tells you more than the lap times do on track. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I, I see where you're coming from. As a psychologist, I think it's really interesting in our first peak of the season ahead to kind of get a look at how the team is gelling, how the driver's getting to grips with the car. Even if you are a self-professed layman in these kind of departments, there is genuinely something for everyone in testing to really keep an eye out for. What about you, Chris? What's your thoughts? Well, obviously, testing used to be like a really huge thing back in the mid 2000s like if they weren't racing they were testing um this of course was hugely unsustainable and expensive so that's when we started limiting the amount of testing there used to be in season uh, tests and they reduced it to just pre and post season testing and even that has been really curtailed to just down to 3 days they used to do something in the way of you know 8 to 12 um even just a, a few years ago but they've really trimmed it down now with the exception of a couple of filming days even on these like filming days and demonstrations, you're so limited in terms of what cars you can bring or what types of tire you're allowed to use as well. Like not proper race tires, just filming day tires, which are nothing like the actual race compounds um, whatsoever. So yeah, really the first opportunity these teams uh, get to run the car in in its entirety is at pre-season testing they do of course have the dynos and everything to test the engines and the power units to make sure the car can actually run in some capacity but yeah the first time it's all kind of put together is on that first day of pre-season testing and that's why it's such a interesting time of the year yeah, and which is why we see so much trial and error from the teams giving a new go. I mean, last season, the story was about Mercedes's side pods, for example, and really giving a go at different things because you're right, they don't have very much time. And I mean, three days, does it seem like enough? It seems like a very sudden launch into the season. I mean, Trumpets, would you say actually that they probably need more time? Well, it, yeah, they could use more time. Do I want them to have it? No, not necessarily, because it increases the opportunity for things to have been gotten very, very wrong. They will almost certainly do a filming day, which is 100 kilometers maximum with special tires, which I think are equivalent to sort of the uh, full wet tires. Okay. Um, and uh, 
you're allowed two of those filming days a season now. And then you also get two what are called demonstration days, which might be what Red Bull is up to in New York shortly, where you're only allotted like 15 kilometers for that. Anything besides that has to be in an older car. And by older car, what they mean is you can't use a 22 car or this year's 23 car. You have to go back to the previous generation. Then you can get like your younger drivers into older cars and give them some experience on circuits. And I think the postseason test this year, if my reading of the regulations is correct, is going to be but a single day after the last race. And we only have three, whereas last season we had six days of testing. Uh, first in Barcelona and then in Bahrain. So it's definitely putting more stress on the simulation tools and on the people writing software at the teams to get this right. And that would be exactly where Mercedes, and not just Mercedes, no one really picked up on the porpoising, even people who thought it might be an issue. The tools they had to hand were not sufficient to identify the issue, but that also kind of makes it fun to watch. That's very true. But I mean, in recent years, especially with the cost cap, there's become a very pronounced emphasis on making sure that teams have as level a playing field as possible. And with that has, of course, come restrictions with simulators, with wind tunnels. And of course, if testing outside of those parameters has already been limited, then even with that, there's even less time within the season to be testing things and making things right. But I mean, going back to your point, Matt, I mean, Vanjim, would you agree? It does make things a little bit more interesting if there's a little bit of trial and error going on. Oh, yeah. The whole season is a testing window, which is which is great for us because we get to see them rise and fall uh, throughout the course of the season and, and succeed and fail as well. But the reason these testing bans were brought in was more to save the teams from themselves because you can't stop the team spending money if you don't give them restrictions they will spend and spend and spend and spend um and you know we had back in the days you had test teams that would have like two or three test teams off at different circuits around the track testing various different things all year round for the current car and the, and the next season's car. Ferrari have a, as like the original poster said, Ferrari do have a test track in their own backyard. They have, they have um, uh, Fiorano and it's literally in their back garden. They can mm-hmm. chuck a car on there whenever they want. And that's exactly what they did when Schumacher was destroying everybody. Um, it was because he was testing all the time. They had, uh, was it Bridgestone with Ferrari? Yes, I'm getting nods. Uh, Bridgestone had specific tyres for Schumacher that he would just test and test and test. And that just brought everything forward. And it was a case of, right, enough is enough. We need to even this out. I mean, I would go for one more week of testing just to build things up a little bit more, build out, build in the reliability so we don't get the failures of reliability throughout the season. Um, but other than that, I think it's about perfect now. Okay, that's fair enough. So you'd say, actually, if we just knock another week onto that, it might just level that out a bit and find the balance between chaos during the season and then in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Maybe if we mediate the amount of craziness on track this year. I mean, porpoising was a scandal almost within the community just because everyone was completely flying off the handle, trying to find what on earth was going wrong and maybe a little bit extra testing time could have just eased that. But again, it added a bit of a spanner in the works and that was quite fun, wasn't it? I want to go back to something you mentioned, um, Trumpets, talking about Red Bull being in New York. So we have a question here from Sean and he says, with Red Bull launching their season in New York, the rumours of them partnering with Ford have increased. Um, 
and in that capacity. But then could it be damaging for a team like Red Bull to partner with a team like Ford who aren't in F1 currently? Well, it could be, depending upon how the nature of that partnership is managed. I mean, I've certainly read of people saying, you know, big manufacturers coming in and we could look at Toyota, for example, Honda, uh, and many others have come in and said, we know what we're doing. We're going to do it our way. But in this case, I don't think Red Bull, and this is perhaps why the Porsche deal got the kibosh put on it. I don't think that Red Bull is going to allow for a partnership that works that way. Ford will have significant resources for Red Bull to draw on. But Red Bull, the racing team, will very much want to be in the quote-unquote driver's seat of moving that power unit uh, chassis design forward. And Ford is going to have to agree to that ahead of time. For Ford, this is not a bad deal. Red Bull is a very competitive team. Mm -hmm. They get to put their branding on it. Their big rival GM and Cadillac is making a huge bid to be in. This is a cheaper way for them to get in, a much cheaper way at a much higher level with way less risk. To me, it sounds like a great thing. Plus, there is a history of Ford in Formula One. That's, that's very true, actually. And going back to what you said about with Red Bull and Porsche, there's going to be a little bit of a battle there if there is an equal partnership, a 50-50 partnership, because no one's got direct authority, whereas a 49-51% partnership would be ideal for Red Bull because they would still have the ultimate decision-making ability. So what's, what's everyone's thoughts on this, Chris? So first of all, I'm not entirely convinced that because they're launching in New York, this means they're announcing a Ford partnership. Bit but of a reach. Again, <laughs> But then again, if they said we're announcing it in Detroit, maybe that would have been too obvious. So maybe there is um, something to it. With regards to is it a bad idea? I mean, the idea of, say, the 2026 regulations, for example, present a, a, a clean slate pretty much for everyone. And that's why all these manufacturers that are coming in are coming in then. Not like when Honda came in a year behind everyone else and really, really struggled not not just because of that, because they were partnering with McLaren, who did absolutely nothing to help them with the development of that engine whatsoever. Um, so I don't think it will immediately bring Red Bull back. But, you know, they've got Red Bull powertrains. It's not enough to build an engine themselves, the resources that they have. And that's why they want a partner to help design the engines and then build them at the factory in Milton Keynes. And that was kind of the idea behind the Porsche thing as well. And it is, as Matt said, a very attractive idea for the manufacturers to spread the load. And as you mentioned, it's more cost effective. Okay, that's interesting. So I guess with Red Bull, it, Ford are a very attractive company, you know, obviously a complete motorsports giant. I mean, Vanjean, what, what would you say about this? Um, I mean, firstly, I agree with Chris on just because in New York doesn't tell me it's going to be just because it's Ford. They are F1 is trying as hard as it can to break America, so why not go to their biggest city? It, you know, it's it, 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 that that best that's, best that's, city. Okay, all right, Mister. All right, Mister. Brooklyn. Is that the Detroit skyline <laughs> in your background, isn't but, it? To give you a bit of an idea with a bit of a history on 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 Ford, they haven't been in Formula One since two thousand and four, and their last championship win was with Michael Schumacher in nineteen ninety four. Um, so they have. It's been a very long time since they've made anything 
modern in the era of Formula One. Um, and they had a very long period of no success. So are they capable? Of course they're capable. If Audi can come in and deal with it, sure. Um, but I don't know. It all depends on what Honda want to do, whether they want to disappear from Red Bull or not. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good point, to be honest. I mean, tr- Trumpets, what about you? Well, I, I just want to be clear about what I'm thinking here of the nature of the Ford relationship. It's going to be more of a badged Red Bull power unit than it is going to be a, an in-house effort from Ford, number one. And that's good for Ford because they don't have to take the risk, but they can supply supplemental knowledge and get their name on it. And it's good for Red Bull because they can drive the design between the chassis and the power unit however they see fit. It will perhaps depend on what they want to do with Honda, and that's fine. But the reason this rumor has surfaced, and I would expect you to be on top of this, is because apparently Ford is sending content creators the same weekend as Red Bull to New York. And this is where this rumor has surfaced from. It's not just that, oh, they're doing it in an American city and Ford is American. That's like, oh, you live in London. Do you know so-and-so? I know so-and-so that lives in London. I mean, it's, it's fun. But they're very specifically sending the kind of team that might be at this event. And being at that event, it's hard not to speculate, mostly because we don't have any real news to talk about, about what might be behind it. It, it is a, Theoretically, it's a great opportunity for, for both sides. But yeah, we're just going to have to wait and see, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I suppose social media content creators, that's that's my area of expertise, allegedly, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, sending content creators to a launch, pretty standard procedure, especially nowadays, it's a great way of engaging the younger generations, you know, drive to survive fans are typically my age. It's, I don't think we can read too much into this. And I think everyone can kind of agree. It's interesting that the launch is in New York. It's not anything that's particularly groundbreaking so we have we have to be careful about the level of speculation here but it's quite fun to pick it pick it apart speaking of america we have one of our american fans who's written in here uh from matt and matt has said um about the sponsorships with the differences between um the uk and the us he said he really enjoys the sport but noticed something strange everyone in the sport seems to refuse to ever mention the sponsors and even primary sponsors so between those different kind of UK, US, there's going to be a little bit of cultural differences, I suppose, in the way we address sponsors. Um, I don't think there's too much to read into that, Chris. Yeah, this isn't America. Formula One, as much as they want it to be, is not an American sport. And I know Matt's going to come in and tell us about how advertising is amazing because in America you get more adverts than you do actual programming. Anybody who watched Daytona this weekend knows you got five minutes of track action and then 10 minutes of adverts. It's astonishing to me. It's really bizarre, I think, the European mindset towards it. And I think it maybe it stems back to something like way back in the 60s when sponsorship was considered vulgar. And they're like, oh, we're going to have to get, you know, brands from outside of the automotive industry to come and give us money so that we can keep going racing. And it was kind of people turn their nose up at it at the time. Maybe it stems from that. I think it also is just impractical to say Mercedes AMG Petronas Formula One team every time you just want to refer to Mercedes. Now, of course, the, the, uh, there was a reference in this question as well about how they never they never hear Lewis Hamilton say Petronas. And of course, they do other marketing materials away from um, the racetrack where they do like you know, sponsor adverts and 
uh, and other bits of content where they do get the drivers um, involved. Um, but I know for a fact that particularly for the Mercedes drivers, trying to get them to do sponsorship stuff, like you maybe get them for like two days of the year. So their time is heavily in demand. And that's why you don't see so much of it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, drivers being dragged away for a marketing, you know, TikTok every five minutes would hardly be ideal. But I mean, it's I think a video circulated pretty recently of um, Lewis and they were all it might have been Toto for Drive to Survive saying the team that they are with and they couldn't remember what the name of the team was the full Mercedes team they were going is it AMG Petronas do you need the AMG and they had to have someone come in and let them know what they needed to say but I mean whilst the sponsors are of course involved it seems a bit of a mouthful to keep mentioning it or maybe it's due to broadcasting rights Chris I was wondering if this is some sort of clash with the broadcasters but then no broadcasters do it at all um, apart from maybe in America so um, yeah, I, I think I think it's just a practicality thing. Banjean, what do you think? I would go with that they are discouraged from doing it on the TV broadcast because of, for example, obviously uh, F1 TV gets the Sky feed, so Sky aren't going to go mentioning a whole bunch of sponsors that aren't uh, relevant to them. Um, I've watched um, other TV shows that are broadcast in America, then sent over here, and they'll have banners for adverts on, on the bottom, and they'll blank them out because it's not their sponsorship. Um, hence the reason the drivers look like walking billboards, and there are just their sponsorships everywhere and all over them. And that's what the TV time is for. The TV time is there for them to, on track that is, for the cars to be seen and the sponsors to be seen. And a quick thing with regards to that um, thing you mentioned about uh, Drive to Survive and them not and the Mercedes boys not knowing the name of the team, when they were doing a name teams beginning with the letter and they said M and Lewis couldn't name a team. Great, Lewis. Well done, mate. Gosh, that's criminal. McLaren, there's so many. I think someone said Marinello or something. Oh, there was there were some really random words beginning with M that were being thrown out in that. Yeah, no. Well, okay, right. Let's move on then to some questions from our patrons. So we've actually had a letter come in from who we believe is our second longest patron, uh, Michael Abon. And he's, gosh, imagine being the second longest patron. I mean, Crazy. Anyway, Michael Abon has written in and from just £2 a month, if you want to be writing in and hearing extra updates about um, our podcast, um, you can get an ad-free feed. You've got a live chat room and access to our F1 community on Slack. Smack, sorry. Um, you can join in and we'd love to have you here. So from Michael Abon, we have had... Hey, Matt and Spanners, I just want to say that while I don't really participate in Slack or the live stream or the iRacing, I haven't missed an episode since the dad hub days. Missed Apex makes such an improvement to my F1 experience, whether that's the tech time or the guests or the banter. I've always enjoyed seeing how much you've grown and being with you every step of the way. Oh, that's very nice. So with, with us in that aspect, let's bring in some of the questions from our wonderful, wonderful patrons. So let's go with uh, a question from Logan 
Kopke, I apologize if I've mispronounced that. He said, how do strategists tra- train and practice for their job? What's the breakdown of skills on a strategy? So looking forward to 2023 strategy. What's going to be coming into that? Um, our machine learning engineers sought after. What's we going to be looking forward to 2023? Obviously, we haven't got as much of new regulations coming in this year. So those kind of things aren't going to be as big as they were in 2022. But what do we think as a strategist? If we were a strategist on an F1 team, let's go through. What would be your main priority in optimizing the performance of the car going into 2023. Fangine? This is where I'm going to embarrass myself. I was distracted entirely by Slack and totally missed the question because we're all talking about things that can't be mentioned on the podcast. So I would, love to, the, I would love to take the question again um, and then maybe Steve can work his magic and edit it out. I feel as though you've... No, unacceptable. I'm moving on to Matt instead. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> right, so let's be clear. Strategists do many things. They're incredibly important in races, but they don't set up the car. Mm-hmm. If I was an F1 strategist, aside from, well, have you seen the film Rocky? Maybe that's how I train in the off season. No, I, I suspect what strategists mainly do is one, they play back the tape. They look back at the previous season, look at decisions that were made that they considered to be right and wrong, where they gained and lost places, and then try and implement processes to end up more on the good side and less on the bad side. Secondly, I think they look at their opponent's decisions and see where they are more susceptible to make incorrect decisions. How can I put pressure on them? Or in what situations are we likely to be able to take advantage of them because of what we have seen? And lastly, I suspect they spend a lot of time reading very abstruse, complicated mathematical treatises and looking at the coding because It's a thing that we have glimpsed, Spanners and myself, briefly and perhaps illicitly, the kinds of software tools that they get to use when they make these choices very rapidly. And I suspect an awful lot of effort goes into updating them, keeping them current, and making them more efficient because the more cycles per second or millisecond you can get out of your computer chip doing this math and telling you these things, the better decisions you can make. And then the other thing would be, I guess, always to go over information flow. How am I getting information about the tires? How accurate is that information? How am I getting information about the weather? How accurate? How quickly do I get that? How is my communication with the mechanics in the garage? How quickly can I, how much time do I have before they can't get tires ready if I call a driver in last second? Things like that would be stuff that it would just constantly review. Okay, right. So that ventured into maths for a second, which is, goodness gracious, not my strong point at all. I'm going to throw in throw in one of my considerations, which is about teammates. My priority, if I was a team principal with two new a new driver pairing underneath me, my main priority actually would be not making the blunder that previous team principals have made, which is not letting these drivers gel properly, A, between themselves for a good dynamic within the team, but then on track actually when they're racing against each other, what my priorities would be directly onto them. Because as we saw with, for example, Lando and Daniel, that was absolutely catastrophic in terms of the chemistry between two drivers, the way that they worked effectively within the team. I mean, strategy is all about optimizing the overall performance of the team. And unfortunately for me, that of course didn't work. And, you know, we can talk for hours about Daniel Ricciardo and how sad it is that he's likely never going to win a world championship. It's something I cry about regularly. (laughs) Um, But for me personally, that would be a priority of mine. Chris, what would yours be? 
Uh, I would send everyone on a team building day where they had to get from like one side of the room to the other without touching the floor, that kind of thing. The floor is lava. That's your yeah. solution to all of these issues. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel like that's fair. I I think floor is lava would be an interesting team building exercise in a car in which in a t- team in which you cannot physically tread on the car, which actually brings us into another question about the strength of the cars, because, of course, these cars do seem to crumple a little bit under um, various conditions in crashes and stuff. And whilst I'm sure the Mini Coopers on the roads do have crumple zones, I'm not sure an F1 car is quite meant to disintegrate. So I will just have to find the question. Um, but basically, in essence, the Formula One cars, they're made out of carbon fibre. They're pretty strong. And I'm so sorry, I cannot find who the question was from. But in essence, we were asked, are the Formula One cars actually not very strong and are they quite brittle or are they stronger than they look, but they just happen to break in the wrong ways? Chris? No, so so they break because when you smash them into each other I and mean, they, they shatter like they're designed to do, they are incredibly strong. If you haven't seen the video of Lewis Hamilton standing on his front wing, then you should just give that a quick uh, Google uh, because, you know, the way one Lewis Hamilton is a fraction of what that front wing can withstand when you consider that they're pulling 5G in corners, which is which means the car is five times heavier than it is when it's stationary going through that corner. So they can withstand tons and tons of pressure um, on them before they shatter. Obviously, in a crash, you put more than the energy it's designed to to withstand for but the reason you see cars kind of shatter and and bits go everywhere in in particularly big crashes is they're designed to do that to dissipate the energy um if if things don't fall apart then suddenly the driver is the one absorbing all that energy and it's not very good so it it shatters and breaks into a million pieces to dissipate that energy yes i've just found it it's from jackson connell jackson thank you for your question so to summarise, Chris, I think the floor is lava would work with a Formula One car because in summary, yes, we cannot exert in ourselves five lateral Gs, which of course, Formula One cars, that's what they're normally exposed to rather than vertical. Um, I think the floor is lava would work. So if any team principals are listening and are looking for ways to, you know, bond their team together, try the floor is lava on an F1 car. It's a pretty big car. It would work quite well. Matt? Yeah, well, uh, just to get in with some numbers on that, the um, front wing has a flexibility test, a static flexibility test that is applied, and it's roughly um, uh, symmetrical on either side of the main plane, which is the the big fixed bit um, uh, of a thousand newtons, which is about a hundred and two kilograms, give or take. And it has to be able to withstand that. So you could stand on one. Now the flaps, and we did see that the flaps will absolutely compress at high speeds. The flaps are only required at the trailing edge to to resist 60 newtons. And the the downward flexibility, by the way, the deflection, I think they call it, is a has been changed to 15 millimeters for this season. So basically you have a hundred kilograms either side of the main plane, you push down on it. It can't deflect more than 15 millimeters. That's the actual standard for front wings. I think what um Jackson was talking about was we saw a lot of detached front wing in plates from from uh, collisions. And uh, I think that, as you said, it, there's a peak force there that will remove an in plate. 
And the reason it became such a deal was mainly because Haas had designed theirs to not fall all the way off. So it would flap in the breeze. But then we kept on getting this black and orange flag that only appeared to be for the Haas team and not for any other team. So that caused a, a bit of controversy. But on the whole, pretty much all of a Formula One car is a lot stronger than you imagine, because as Chris rightly points out, the atmosphere is a heavy thing. And that's even before you start going 320, 330 kilometers an hour. Yeah, well, of course, these end plates are relatively essential for the car. You know, they can drive without them, but they're very important in the aerodynamics in directing, as we've seen in the 2022 season, the flow of the air towards the rear wing and making sure that it's going in the perfect way to minimise the risk of dirty air and cars following each other. And that's something we really saw in 2022. So Stuart has actually asked us, my question for tonight's show is, whilst the design of the F1 car was brought in for 2022, apparently this year there are further tweaks to these aerodynamics regulations. So what would these be? And how are these going to affect the teams and the cars, Matt? Well, um, there's a couple of uh, fairly big ones. Uh, They've raised the um, minimum height for the throat of the diffuser, and they've raised the uh, floor edges. Now, this, uh, in my opinion, is a very big giveaway to Mercedes, which was suffering quite badly with porpoising in the middle of the last season. And before you go saying, oh, FII stands for you know, help Mercedes department. This is this is a pretty common thing. We saw Mercedes. Get That's a, a rubbish n- acronym. <laughs> number of toys taken away from them under the previous regulation set by the FIA. It's a pretty common thing for them to um to sort of, without actually calling it that, sort of help balance performance amongst the teams. How it will affect them is, I think the cars will mainly be slower. And there will mostly be less porpoising as a result. Now, I expect the teams to claw back most of that time over the course of a season, if not gain even more, because that seems to be what always happens. It's also worth pointing out that we did have that change in the plank uh, regulation, the technical directive that came on mid-22 that seemed to pretty savagely affect Ferrari. Um, I'm, I'm imagining they have recovered mostly from that but that we saw a trick Mercedes front wing band as well. And we saw that trick Aston rear wing band, all of them mainly looking to create more outwash than the initial regulations were intended to allow for. And that's going to restrain how the teams are going to develop their aerodynamic concepts because they're going to be looking very much at the floor and the flow of air to the rear of the car to find that time. I'm very glad that we've already touched on the conspiracy theories about Mercedes. Lovely. I mean, wasn't there a period in history where um, the FIA was allegedly meant to stand for Ferrari International Assistance or yes, something? Absolutely. It happens. It seems to happen all the time. And historically, of course, with a team as successful as Ferrari, there's been a lot of drama. So we've got another question here from Justin, and he's a newbie to F1. Um, and he's written in and he said, first off, just wanted to mention how much I enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Justin. Getting the email from Patreon that a new podcast is up really brightens my day. As one of those stereotypical American fans that came to F1 via DTS, my historical knowledge is severely lacking. So he's asking, are there any periods that he should particularly focus on in watching? Should he avoid any? I mean, what does everyone think is like the most iconic, absolute must-see elements of F1 in the last 70-odd years? Fangine? 
Um, for me, and, I'm, and Chris is going to get really annoyed that you've come to me or for, for me first on this. Um, the lots of the late noughties and early teens, um, or early early tens, um, 07, 08 were awesome. Um, twenty twelve is probably one of the best seasons F1's ever had because you had seven winners in the first seven seven different winners in the first seven races, um, and. Also, if you go back to 2005, when you got to see the uncrowning, uncrowning, is that a word? Um, of dethroning, Michael Sch- perhaps. Dethroning, that's the <laughs> word I'm looking for. The, un- the, <laughs> the dethroning of Michael Schumacher by Fernando Alonso, back when I thought he was really nice. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff there in the not so distant past. Um, I don't think too much of the old stuff was too great unless you want a couple of spectacular bits. But as far as full-on title fights, I think if you just sit, stick to the noughties and the tens, as far back as you want to go, you've got plenty to go on. Goodness, so you you th- actually think the old bits aren't as good. Oh, gosh, I bet that's going to have some of our listeners absolutely reeling. Chris, please please tell Van Jean that that is so incorrect. No, no, he's absolutely right. Everyone has this idea that F1 in the 90s was amazing and it, it just was not. Uh, oh, guys, and- I'm trying to advocate for the older generations here and I'm being shot down. No, don't care. Right, I'm going to narrow down <laughs> Jeansy's um, era specifically 2007 to 2012 was a halcyon period for formula one was just unbelievable cracking seasons sometimes uh the championship fight was over a little bit early 2011 being a good example when sebastian vettel was pretty dominant but the races themselves were incredible especially because that was the period when we started out with pirelli tires and drs and curs it was all these new things that made the racing so so exciting um, and I, I love as well that we get so many new new fans, American fans or DTS fans, wherever they're from, and they come to learn more about the sport here. I love that they do that. So, uh, yeah, cheers for doing that. And um, I will uh, direct you away from the comments that are in the uh, live chat room with some crafty ones saying you should watch the 2005 USGP. Don't fall for it. It's a trap. And I'll tell you what, you can pretty much skip the initial part of the hybrid era as well, 14 through 16, with the exception of Bahrain 2014, because it was pretty much a dud. Goodness, strong words. Trumpets, come on. What have you got to say about this? Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So first of all, if you want to watch a race from the 90s, I'd recommend the European Grand Prix of 99. I have never seen a more bonkers race in my entire life. You will enjoy it. The commentary is magical and mostly ill-informed, and it's just fantastic in every way. It's not what we get today, so don't expect that. Secondly, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that any race where Prost and Senna crash into each other is probably worth watching just because, and I'm sure you can just Google that. Uh, I believe there was some excitement about Mansell winning a championship at some point or another. That season might be a, a good watch. But I'm really going to disagree with the 2014 and 2015 seasons not being a good watch. Well, so if you're, I, okay. I, and I'm going to get in with uh, a kind of funny reason. Number one, reliability was completely, absolutely mental. You could see a car just explode for no reason almost every race, and it was fantastic. But secondly, the reason I'm really going to recommend it, one, Hamilton versus Rosberg was a fantastic. real fight. And secondly... No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. <gasps> it, it, I do believe it was I'm one of the best races we've ever had. <laughs> and second of all, I'm going to tell you why. If you watch uh, either the first or the second trip around Barcelona, you had either side of the Mercedes garage using all of their knowledge of the other side's energy usage, talking to the drivers at the same time, trying to get each other around their competitor. And Mercedes has eventually gone on and said, no, we're not going to play this game anymore. You're not allowed to do that. But there were times where the full potential of that car was being exploited by the engineers and drivers simultaneously to make one person faster than the other and you only get to see that in that first in that first year or two of those regulations now if you're not excited by that then yeah give it a rest mercedes won you already knew that but if you're into those sorts of details and you look carefully i think they're worth finding so we okay. got to see that at what three races across a three-year period Oh, Matt, you've struck a nerve. You've struck a nerve. Right. We clearly and? have some very strong opinions Did about you this. Did you watch the 80s? I'm just saying. I wasn't around for the 80s, Matt. You know oh. I didn't. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the general consensus is if you don't want to watch some really close racing between two teammates that's really cool and has you on the edge of your seat, then you know what? Don't watch it. Alex? Um, if you do want to go back, if you've ever wondered why everyone keeps banging on about Ayrton Senna, the race to watch is the 1993. I think they called it the European Grand Prix, but it was at Donington in the rain. If you want to understand why everybody raved about Ayrton Senna, just watch that race. He went from, I think, seventh on the grid to first in the first lap and destroyed everybody. Think Lewis Hamilton, 2008 Silverstone levels. It was an absolutely phenomenal performance. And set the lap record going through the pit lane, which is not something you see anymore. No. Also, I'm pretty certain one year, I can't remember what year it was, at Manny Cor, he put it on pole by crashing it into the wall coming across the line because it was actually faster to cut across the chicane and go into the wall than actually go across the line and he crashed it in qualifying yeah i remember uh so going across to formula e john eric Vern got a, a pole one year by spinning out of the final corner because i think like the um the gps thing whatever it was the timing thing is in the back of the car so when he spun it around it actually cut it across the line quicker 
Gosh, that's a tactic and a half, isn't it? Okay, so the overall idea of this is it depends on what your priorities are. If you're a new fan looking to get more into F1, there are so many good races. I personally, I'm going to push this because this doesn't get talked about enough. The Braun era of the sport, Rubens Barrichello, Jensen Button, that had me, I, I must have been like eight, but I was on the edge of my seat. I thought that for me, that was top racing. I loved every second of that, Chris. Braun was such a magical story and it's why it's such an iconic um car i mean yes it was a car that was ultimately developed by honda when they were still in the sport but the fact that they packed up that team and that car wasn't even going to race until ross braun scooped up the remains of that team and bought it for a single pound a shilling and sixpence <laughs> and 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 made it and made it go racing and they won the world championship that is the leicester city winning the fa cup story of formula 1 and of course as you know as we all know that team is now mercedes so pretty good investment i think made by ross braun there yeah i have to say in my heart of hearts I have such a soft spot. And I know I'm sure many of you listeners are listening into this going, oh my gosh, this girl is so old. But yes, my eight-year-old heart was full with Rubens Barrichello and Jensen Button. For me, that was an absolutely golden era of racing. And I do think actually that was made by the partnership in a way between Rubens Barrichello and Jensen Button. They just seemed to have it really well. Again, I was eight. What did I know? But Chris? No, of course, that was the arrival of Red Bull that year as well it was what their fourth year in the sport and that was the year they took their first pole position their first win they bid for the championship with Sebastian Vettel um, as well uh, especially in the second half of the season and really laid the groundwork for what would be the halcyon period of Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull Racing going on to win four world championships together. That's the thing Vettel just kind of came from this very young, fresh face on the scene to almost just dominating out of what seemed like nowhere. There was almost like no gap to be filled in the F1 championship waiting room and Red Bull barge in with Sebastian Vettel. And, you know, it's with hindsight, we can look back and call it the golden years. You know, we can look back very fondly on Seb, especially now that he's retired. But of course, at the time he was incredibly unpopular and going back to what we were saying earlier about um, Mercedes allegedly being helped by the FIA Ferrari allegedly being helped by the FIA it's really difficult actually to be objective about this kind of thing Matt it is although I will put in a personal plug for uh, Vettel in a Toro Rosso in the rain being the best Vettel ever and uh, the chat threw up an interesting suggestion which is the season so exciting in the 70s they made a movie about it rush which would be the uh, year that james hunt won the championship that might be a pretty pretty entertaining uh watch the season watch the movie kind of deal gosh yes listeners if you haven't listened to this movie watch this movie you absolutely have to it's for starters you know fantastic cast chris hemsworth it's it's a good watch but aside from that it really for me summarizes the kind of era of being a gentleman racer you know they had their cigarettes they had the wreaths around their neck when they won it was such just a fantastic period of the sport and watching this film made me wish I could just transport myself back there you know Lauda we we haven't mentioned him yet today Nicky Lauda 
my word, gosh, if if you are a new fan and you haven't watched Louder Racing, my goodness, please, that battle between all of these drivers back then that we just don't really talk about much anymore. No, Rush, it's a fantastic film, absolutely needs watching. Chris? But I do not envy Ron Howard trying to make the ending of that championship exciting when the main protagonist just pulls into the pits and says, I'm not going to race because it's too dangerous. It's, I mean, it was a bit of a challenge. I mean, they pull it off, in fairness, because they sort of fake some issue for, for James Hunt, which is, there, there, there is a list of things they actually did and things that they made up for the movie list somewhere. But The, the, the thing that's interesting with that movie is, for me, Nicky Loud is actually the hero of the movie, not, oh, yeah. James, not James Hunt. Because to be fair, from everything you see from James Hunt in that movie, okay, he's funny and he's an old boy and whatever, but he's a bit of a... What can I say that I can actually say on this podcast? <laughs> Not um, particularly pleasant, necessarily. That's the one. Um, you know, and as someone has put in the thing, misogynistic drunks. And Nicky Lauda was a gentleman. Okay, he was ruthless, and he he's still, uh, up until the day he died, was as ruthless as they come. But... He was a proper racer, um, oh, yeah. and everybody else was in it just for the the cigarettes, the money, and the women. Well, you know, the sport the sports come a long way. I'm sure there'd be a few people turning in their grave if they knew that I was a girl hosting a podcast about F1. But we move, we move. I think looking back at those kind of rivalries, I mean, we we glorify them so much as if just in the last few years we haven't had such fantastic battles. Anyway, I mean, I I know that there is no touchier subject than the battle between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. But my goodness, what a rivalry! I do feel so upset that we didn't have as tight a battle in the past, you know, year or so that we've had leading up to this year. I mean, looking into the future, into the next few years, who do we think is going to have those really tight, you know, win at any cost battles? I mean, I'd like to see Ferrari enter the mix, a young Charles Leclerc maybe trumpets. Okay, so if if we're going to play this game, the game is Ferrari better win this season because I think the brains of their operation wandered out the door with Mattia Bonato. Now, now, not that there are not plenty of talented people there. So are you not interested that he's left now? Are you not happy about that? Or do you think that's a mistake for Ferrari? I think that's a massive mistake for Ferrari. Gosh, that, that explain, is, that explain. Is, well, first of all, as we can see, the teams that have been most successful have had very little turnover at the team operational, at the top of the team operational hierarchy. Mercedes, yeah, you know, we sort of went through Braun at the end of his career and we got Wolf, but Wolf has been there. He's been a steady hand, even as people underneath him have rotated. Bonato brought in a different kind of engineering culture to Ferrari, along with not only an amazing knowledge of their power unit, but also uh, technical knowledge that that let him be the final say, I suspect, in many things that went on there. So the car that we're going to see under under Vasseur is going to be Bonato's car. If Ferrari succeed this year, about 80% of that is really down to Bonato. Um, okay. But so I'm, if Ferrari do well then, do you reckon yeah. then that, you know, we could have, you know, for example, if they come out, they're doing really well, top of the tables... That would be really cool. Awesome. Do you think we could have Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz absolutely battling it out? Um, 
No, I don't think Ferrari will really permit that. I, but okay. also, it's just the nature of the racing. It'll mm-hmm. be pretty clear um, that the person with the best chance will make it apparent that they're the ones with the best chance early on. Maybe Leclerc has some bad reliability hits early on and signs wins a couple of races, and it's they have to throw everything behind one driver to have a hope against Verstappen. The interesting thing is we don't really know what role Mercedes is going to play quite yet. We can guess. I think they'll win more races than they did mm-hmm. uh, last season. I don't know if they'll be able to catch up because they lost so much time to solving the problems that they had. Definitely. For a season. But then Red Bull has that penalty. So if, if Ferrari's going to do it, I think it has to be this season. Okay, right. Well, on that note, then we'll move this on to another question we've got from Ryan St. John, who has said, looking at the new driver pairings, who wins the head to head battle between each team and who's going to take the most points by the season end? Because, of course, we've got lots of new pairings, a lot of shuffling around in the field this year. We've got Ocon and Gasly, DeVries and Noda, Magnussen versus, you know, Hulkenberg, who has just been taking come back and he's new but he's not really new so let's actually unpick out of the new pairings I mean I'm really interested actually to see how Hulkenberg gets on he's proven himself to be a great racer but this is now what his fourth kind of chance in Formula One he's been given a lot of chances he's been brought in over new drivers so for example ones from Formula Two so there's been a lot of faith put in Hulkenberg so do we think that he's going to give Magnussen a run for his money Alex? Um, I think the reason Hulk's been brought in is because he's a safe pair of hands I think Mm -hmm. Haas are fed up of the car being smashed into a wall every practice session and every race and trying to save on some parts so he will be a safe pair of hands I do think K-Mag will have the better of him if K-Mag can stop running into people in races. Um, I think outright speed, K-Mag will have Hulk any day of the week. It all, as long as K-Mag can stay out of trouble, I think he'll have Hulk. Um, I think I think um, DeFries, it's DeFries and Albon, isn't it? DeFries and Albon is going to be mm-hmm. a very, very interesting pairing. DeFries and Sonoda. DeFries and Sonoda, sorry. Um, oh, Albon's at Williams, isn't he? Um, That's very yeah, De Vries, De, um, De Vries and Sonoda. I actually think De Vries will get the better of Sonoda. I still really? think Sonoda, I still think Sonoda is too petulant, um, okay. and uh, and he's not consistent enough. I mean, Sonoda's been in the sport a long time, though. You know, he's the third he's had, season this year. He, he's not a rookie anymore. He's not a rookie anymore. But I think De Vries showed it. Not uh, yeah, De Vries showed at Monza that he can just sit there, lap be consistent, even in what was a difficult car, a car that he didn't didn't know, and he can just put the laps in and not have any problems. And I think that'll be absolutely key to him getting on top of Sonoda. I think that's why it was so impressive when he did what he did, because he just came in, sat himself down in that F1 car, took it for some laps, and he did a brilliant job of not A, sending it into a wall, B, being overtaken by everybody, and C, He's pretty likable. You know, it's really great to see him in the sport. I mean, he's for a rookie, he's quite old. He's is late twenties, I believe. And so, for the and for the benefit of the sport, he put the final nail in Latifi's coffin. And yes, and amongst fans that seems to have some very mixed reactions i mean i know i know on no i know on my social medias at least i've had people crying at the loss of goatee fee you know he he meant a lot to the sport i've got his birthday marked in my calendar i can't wait to wish him a happy birthday it's only for meme power 
No oh, one really genuinely wants him in the sport. No, do you know what? This is, I agree with this. And pe- the people who say go Tifi, they are just mocking him. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't like that. I, I've it feels a bit a unkind, doesn't it? Yeah. But oh, you're the- actually a fan. So that's why yes. you don't like it. Right. Go on, explain yourself. Why? Well, I, was, I worked with him in Formula 2 for a little bit. And he's okay. just like the nicest guy in the world. Is, so. he, a good, is he a good racer, Chris? Aside he was from in, his personality. He was, he was in Formula 2. Um, yeah. And I think had things gone a slightly different way, then uh, uh, things could have worked out a little bit better. I mean, he was never going to set the world of Formula 1 alight. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like he did the best he could. And I respect him for that. No, I, to be honest, I do agree. He he does get so much stick. And I'm aware that's mm. probably due to some of the controversies that are, a couple of his crashes potentially caused. I'm yeah. swiftly moving on, swiftly moving on. Um, I do think, I, I hate to be really harsh on a driver. I hate to say, you know, oh, Latifi was not good because I have absolutely no doubt that he gave it his absolute best shot. I mean, we're all very kind to Ricardo, who, bless him, did not have a very good last couple of seasons. But yes, back back to the teammates. I do think we've got some exciting things coming up. I do think that going into next season, like you've said with DeVry, I think that's going to be so exciting. But we need people on the grid who are going to be consistent at a bare minimum. You know, it's like we were saying about K-Mag. He's a fantastic driver because he came into Haas after... Like like you said, Van Jean, we've had quite a lot of crashes going on at Haas. They've had an expensive couple of years with having rookies on the squad. And then now they're bringing in the old faithfuls who are going to keep the car on the track. But do we not agree? You know, we're measuring drivers by how reliable they are. Could we perhaps say that it is a bare minimum that they finish races, that they perform with the car as the car probably should perform, Matt? Well, I, I really want to seize on a word you keep using which is consistent. Okay. So okay. I, if, if we're going to, if we're going to run them down real quick, we got Sergeant Albin. I think Albin wins. Sergeant's a rookie. I think Sergeant does better than Latifi and that helps Williams. They might score a few extra points, but not a lot more. I think they're Okay. So a step up, but nothing revolutionary. Yeah, no, I would okay. be surprised barring crashes or reliability Sergeant outpointing Albin because he's already been at the team and he's got experience. Mm-hmm. DeVries Sonoda is the most interesting contest, in my opinion. Okay. DeVries is kind of unknown. Like, he stepped in to a, William, a Williams, but a Williams at Monza, which has like two and a half turns in it, and <laughs> did well. It's not a Hungary, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But the thing I, that makes DeVries, to me, I think Sonoda is faster. I think Sonoda is faster than Gasly. But, oh, okay. But there's the word consistent. The thing about consistency, and I, I listened to a, a lecture recently from uh, Willem Tillett, and he told a story about Schumacher and Irvine at Ferrari, where there was an aerodynamic issue that they fixed. They fixed it, and Schumacher said, okay, the car is easier to drive, but it's no faster. Irvine was half a second faster because Schumacher was more consistent in the braking zone and could manage the instability that was being created by the aerodynamic problem. For me, I think DeVries is probably a more consistent driver and therefore is sitting on better results. But Tsunoda, just out of the out of the gate, I think is faster. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can add consistency on top of what he's already got. If he can, if he does, then I do think that he will beat DeVries. I completely agree. When Tsunoda first came into the sport... Everyone was so excited because it was this new driver coming in who had a reputation for just being blimming quick. 
you know and then there was a little bit of kind of stalling perhaps with with his consistency with his race results and I do agree actually if he can time after time race after race prove himself to be the racer that we know he can be I think he'd be an absolute force to be reckoned with I think he'd be absolutely incredible however measuring up next to um Nick DeVries and of course the best way to judge a driver's ability is by comparing them to their teammate because performance-wise, they're in the same car. It's the easiest scope of comparison. I think we're really in for so much excitement, Chris. So amazingly, I've agreed with everything that everyone has said so far on this question. Goodness. So I'm going to pick a fight with trumpets. Oh, no. Not the devil's advocate. Because you know. I know know. where this is going. You know. I am back in my boy P. Gasly in the Ocon. <laughs> in the Ocon right. battle. Go on, Chris. Go on. Go on. Rip him to shreds with your point. Oh, I just think he's a better driver. That's it. Oh, is that uh, it? That okay. is pure and simple. Not quite ripped to shreds. I but... think he's faster than Ocon. I think he's a better driver than Ocon. I, w- uh, I will actually, before you come back okay. with what I'm sure will be a very intense comeback that will leave Chris never wanting to show his face in public again. I also quite like Pierre Gasly. I also think he's pretty good. Before last season, 2021, consistent eighth place or better in races, consistent fifth in quali. He really was doing so well. And then these new aerodynamic regulations came in. It all became a little bit of a headache for him. And he did slightly, in my opinion, underperform for how good of a driver he is last season. But yeah, so I'm sorry, Trumpets, before you say anything, I'm just going to say I am already with Chris on this one. Uh, that's fine with me. You're both entitled to be wrong. Oh, you know. goodness. Uh, no, well, it's pretty simple. I'm going to be honest. Reason number one is that Ocon has been at the team two years. Gasly's at a fresh new team. And that's a huge advantage for Ocon. Second of all, say what you will. If you look at his record against Alonso, aside from, I think, Lewis Hamilton, no one has done better against Alonso than Ocon. I think it speaks to some qualities that were... Uh, you know, not going to be apparent given Alonso's ability to run PR and the fact that he was clearly the focus of the team. He was brought in to lead that team. And so that's that's where the team went. Um, but last of all, I'm, I'm going to point out three particular things that I've not seen Gasly do. One goes all the way back to Force India when in the wet at Spa, uh, Ocon qualified third on the grid in a Force India in the wet. I, I that was that made me think he was the real deal. But Rain is the, the great equalizer. So, you know, you've kind of juxtaposed well, yourself a he bit. He was there. against he was against Perez, and oh. Perez was four or five steps down that particular in qualifying. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so it's amazing. I, he qualified third in the third fastest car that particular weekend, beating the driver who qualifies uh, six tenths off of Max Verstappen. Interesting. Okay, in right. 2015 in a, Chris. In, in 2015 in a Force India in Spa, we're not talking about this past season. We're talking about 2015 in a Force India. Of course, very applicable to Second 2023. I'm going to point out, and I think this is really Ocon's strength here. I'm going to point out the win in Hungary, where he was against Vettel in, in a car that was pretty equal to his. He basically started on pole position once Lewis Hamilton came in. And he never, ever once lost the lead to Vettel, a four-time world champion. And last, I'm simply going to point out, again, it's Suzuka in a car that was clearly slower than Lewis Hamilton's Mercedes. Once again, 
he had no problem keeping Lewis behind him. I think people underestimate Ocon because of his personality. And mainly, I think he gets a lot of bad PR because on orders, he passed Max Verstappen, unlapped himself and wound up in a crash with him and then baited Verstappen into shoving him and getting a further penalty. Ocon is smart. He has obviously no fear whatsoever when he's leading the race. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's a tall hill for Gasly this season. Next season will be more interesting because then I think we'll see the true measure of both drivers. So, so yeah, he crashed. He crashed into a race leader, and that makes him a great driver. Now, let race me. Race leader crashed into him. Let's, I'm just going to be very clear about that. Chris is about to finish you. Chris is about to finish you. Sit and take it. Let me address the points you have made, <laughs> Mr. Trumpets. Because yeah, because Trumpets came that, with us. That win in Hungary, as impressive as it was, you cannot overtake in Hungary. And oh, really? Sebastian Vettel was not going to be making that pass in a million years i don't so that's think. why there Especially were no overtakes in... at hungary that that year no in the apart in the from, okay you mean yeah. apart from okay. the cars that were like right. three seconds a lap quicker sure passing thing. midfielders then yeah sure Whatever. hamilton couldn't but, even get but past you know, that. No, it's no, when please. we have debate tell me more you have to listen to the other points let's, oh, let's no, no, allow no, no. let's allow chris to finish you before you have your comeback compared <laughs> to gasly's win at monza for example where he had to fend off carlos Sainz. That was a much closer, fairer fight, in my opinion, and one that really? was more likely to turn on its head. What was the other rubbish point you made, Matt? I forget the third one. Okay, right. This is getting confrontational. I'm going to ask Vangine to step in. Right, Vangine, can you offer us on Esteban Ocon a balanced, rounded perspective that doesn't involve slandering each other? <laughs> so, on this matter, I am going to agree with Matthew. Um, oh, I very much, there's a divide in the panel I very much believe that over the over the course of the season Ocon will have the better of Gasly Gasly lucked into his win at Monza a lot more so than what happened what happened to Ocon because, listen I was cheering and I was really happy I mean I wanted Carlos Sainz to win that race but before <laughs> um, the whole chaos with Lewis Hamilton's pit stop and the safety car Gasly was nowhere near winning that race. Ocon, because of the Mercedes screw-up with Hamilton, was in for the win from lap one and dominated the, and, and held off Sebastian Vettel, a four-time world champion, in a just, just about faster car, because it had less fuel in it, um, for the entirety of the race. I think Ocon, again, is a more consistent driver than Pierre Gasly. I do believe that it will come to stretching out those points. And there is also big history between those two. And I think um, Ocon is probably in a better PR position within the team for it. Um, it's going to be close. I have no doubt it's going to be close, but I, I okay. do side with Matt on this one, and I do believe that Ocon will have the better performance this season. Okay. Right, that rounds off that very nicely, so I'm going to park that there before we're reaching through the microphones to stab each other, because there were some arguments there. Anyway, on that note, it seems we're all very interested, actually, to see where these new partnerships go, where these new teammates are you know, heading with their season. So in that in that spirit, David has written in and asked, what is each presenter looking forward to most about the 2023 season? Let's just go with that. We'll go around the panel. Chris, what moment or what aspect of F1 are you most excited to delve into? The checkered flag in Abu Dhabi. Goodness. 
no. explain yourself in uh it, oh god because it means 23 rounds will finally be over um no in all seriousness uh <laughs> um i'm looking forward to uh hopefully a resumption of uh, mercedes challenging for wins so that we can uh we can see red bull being challenged hopefully ferrari are right up in there as well i would love 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 to see a uh a proper three-team battle up at the front of the field yeah i completely agree i would love 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 to see a three-team battle at the front of the field i want them to be fighting for wins i want six different race winners in the first six races of the season don't call it wishful thinking i'm manifesting it i'm i'm praying that it will happen what about you matt what's one thing that you really really want to see next season that you're excited for I'll tell you what I'm excited for. I'm excited to see Piastri and a McLaren. Mm-hmm. I want to know once and for all, is this a McLaren problem? Or is this just a weird Ricardo McLaren doesn't fit square peg round hole kind of a thing? Because I will say that looking at Norris performance in McLaren last year, Alpine were very lucky to walk away with fourth. If, if you know, just looking at the points discrepancy is, is remarkable. That said, Piastri's, well, brand new in the sport. So I think there could be some fun. Yeah. I completely agree. I'm so, so, so looking forward to seeing him versus Lando. I think that's going to be so good. It feels like such a fresh pairing, doesn't it? Two hugely promising drivers and it's just going to be so, oh, it's going to be so good. I'm really looking forward to that as well. I completely agree. Vangin, what's yours? Before I go to mine, I'm going to address Matt's one. I think with Piastri, I... I believe Piastri has to perform instantly after the absolute fuss that he caused throughout 2022. That guy has to come in and hit the ground running and there's no arguments. You can't cause that much of a fuss through three different teams. I think it ended up being without and, and, and then not actually step up to the challenge. I'm not saying he's got to go out there and absolutely beat Lando Norris, but he's got to be on that pace straight away. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say he was hugely dramatic, Matt. Uh, yeah, but I'm sorry. If his first time he beats Norris isn't called Piastri de Resistance by every <laughs> single headline writer, they should all be fired. Okay, well, Piastri's going to come in next year, be the Piest de Resistance or the Piastri de Resistance of F1, Chris. Can I just say, Piastri caused zero fuss. Mm-hmm. Alpine caused all he the fuss. Didn't oh, have blame to, the whole he blame the French. Fine, blame the French. Go he ahead. did not have to send that tweet. Yes, he did. No, he didn't. I'm sorry. In this world of modern technology, you do not need to tweet that you are not joining Alpine when you can have a much more dignified conversation. Right, he I'm brought going it to, all himself. I but am going let's to go offer to my, my <laughs> social media perspective on this, which is these races they know they have platforms in making such a public announcement that was going to subject piastri to a huge amount of you know positive attention probably yes but also just a lot of messages going oh you're raising for alpine that then could infringe on his contract with mclaren in terms of he's probably been told not to say anything at that point because of course the deal was signed in silverstone so it it had been in the works he knew it was happening so there was a very limited amount he could say to respond to this however i don't blame him for approaching a public situation 
publicly because if he did go to Alpine quietly, then that doesn't resolve the fact that everyone now thinks he's racing for Alpine. You know, when a situation has been made public, responding to it publicly, I do understand that. And it's well within his rights, knowing that he's going to be racing for McLaren to go, I'm sorry, that's incorrect. He didn't give anything away necessarily. Yes, it raised suspicions, but, you know, he didn't slander anyone online. He didn't do anything overly aggressive. He just very emphatically, very strongly said, no, that's not true, basically. And that that's just my take from a social media perspective. Chris, you, you know PR, this is you. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Because oh, if wow, I was Piastri's PR, I would have done the exact same Mm -hmm. thing squash it quickly and i'll tell you what as well let me just remind y'all rookie rookie formula renault champion rookie formula Uh three champion rookie formula two you list them off chris he will do just fine so is stoffel van dorn Stoffel Van no, you cannot even begin. Oh wow. I sense we're I sense we're heading off on a tangent here. You know what? On that note, what a what a love Chris, I'm going to have to ask you to yield to the chair, please. Goodness gracious. You know what, everyone? On the note of social media, that's going to be all for today. Thank you so much for all listening in. I've had a lot of fun. These kind of things, they get my heart pitter-pattering. But you've all been so wonderful sitting there silently listening on Monday morning. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. And that's going to be all for today. So please follow our panel. We've got Chris on Twitter at ChrisOnRacing. We've got Mr. Alex Van Jean. Follow Alex, which is spelled Alex Van Jean, V-A-N-G-E-E-N. And Matt at PT55. And also, you know, whilst you're there, feel free to check out my TikToks by searching for F1 Antonio on TikTok. I tend to post the good ones on Twitter as well. So feel free to follow me on Twitter as well. And thank you so much for tuning in. All of the panel's social media will also be linked in the show notes below on whichever platform you're consuming this on. And next week, we have a magazine show focusing on tech before Spanners comes back to launch Miss Apex into a new season. How exciting. We've got so much cool stuff coming up. It's nearly season. Hang on, guys. We're so close. And until we see you next, work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Miss Apex. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Acast and Befehler. Oh.
Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakle.